All right, so this morning we uh, return to John 6, which at first glance is about one of Jesus' most astounding public miracles, which is the feeding of the 5,000. And we mentioned that this event and the resurrection are the only miracles that are recorded in all four Gospels, right? So it's a big one. But in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, it's told really because of its significance uh, as evidence of the divine nature of Christ and so many people experienced this miracle at one time. It was unique that way. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke really include it um, just as one of many miracles. John only picks several miracles in his whole gospel to really focus on and, and this is one of them. So he's writing decades later. He wants to fill in the blanks and tell us more and tell us not only what happened on that day but what happened after that day. And uh, so he's, he's got a lot, he's got his own purposes here, but his overarching purpose in his gospel is to present Jesus as the Savior and to bring people to put their trust in him as their Savior and their Lord. So that's what John's always doing. Jesus is the source of eternal life. But he also wants us to see what faith in Jesus means and what it doesn't mean. Because there's ways to be drawn to Jesus that are not what God wants. There's ways to approach Jesus that are it's not the way God wants. So it's really important that we understand what it means to be a true follower of Christ, what it means to put your faith in him. So he tells us what happened after the miracle and how Jesus, when we get to the end of chapter 6, Jesus loses a lot of followers. And that's important too, to know why that happened. Because you don't want to be one of those people that leaves him because you lose everything when you do that. So there's a lot going on here, all kinds of different things. The reason he lo loses followers is because they wanted Jesus on their terms to fit their desires. It's really a completely backwards way of thinking on the part of these people that are coming and seeking Jesus here. So we want to learn from them what's wrong. It's, it's fallen humanity's great sin in regard to religion to think that God exists for me. And that's really how most people approach religious faith. What can God do for me? I'll, I'll, I'll worship him in some way so I can get some sort of benefit from him. Uh, they, they, they choose a God to fit their desires and um, they want God to be their servant, not they be his servant. That's a normal way and that's what we're gonna see here with these these folks and there's a lot of folks so John chapter 6 goes deeper by telling us more and it's not about the miracle so much as it is about well the disciples and then who and who is not a true follower of Jesus so what is a true disciple what does it mean to belong to Jesus what does it mean to believe what does it mean to follow so this chapter is structured around taking Jesus so the chapter starts you've got Jesus disciples and you've got the crowd that's following Jesus and then it sort of breaks it down um, that there's, it focuses on the disciples, it focuses then on the crowd, then it focuses on the disciples again, then it focuses on the crowd, and then it focuses on the disciples. So the whole thing's kind of going like that. It's very purposeful the way it's structured. That's what chapter 6 is. So chapter 6 started with the 12 and the crowd, sort of. The, the, um, they're supposed to, the 12 are supposed to be on a vacation. They'd just gotten back from a big preaching tour, and Jesus takes them across the Sea of Galilee to a desolate place, a distant place where they can be together and kind of recreate. But people see them on the boat going that way. So these crowds all along the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee start moving towards where they're headed and they all show up 
where Jesus brings his disciples for a vacation. So we've talked about all that before, but verse 2 of John 6, a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. So the crowd comes to the place of rest for them, supposedly a place of rest. Um, and instead of saying, Jesus could say, folks, I'd love to help, but I'm on vacation. <laughs> instead of that, because he has a compassionate heart, he spends all day ministering to these people, feeding them finally, feeding all of them, well over 5,000 people with bread that he just creates from a lunch, a little boy's lunch, right? So it's a miracle, it's a grand miracle, the most widely witnessed miracle of all the miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. And last time we talked about this dangerous idea, this dangerous notion that arose among the crowd, these Galilean um, followers who came to seek Jesus. And it's in verse 15 actually, it says, so Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So we also talked about the potentially ruinous situation if the 12 disciples became infected with the crowd's idea of making Jesus become the king outside of his timetable and outside of God's will. So he doesn't want that to happen. So that evening, the narrative shifts back to the disciples and Jesus sends them by boat back across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, which is on the western shore there, near the western shore. So he sends them into a storm. Now why would he do something like that? Well, last week we talked about him protecting them from thinking everything's just going to go great now. Because these crowds are all excited. They already want to make him king. They're, they're thrilled. Thousands, tens of thousands of people. And they think the kingdom's right there. And so he sends them into a storm so they have to spend all night rowing and going, this is really hard because it's, it's going to be hard for the rest of their lives. So we talked about that before too. So that's kind of what's going on there. Um, but part of that was Jesus walking to them while they're rowing and not doing well and on the water, walking on the water, getting into the boat and then suddenly they find themselves on the other side. So there's another miracle there. But that's him working with the disciples. So following John's structure, it's sort of crowd disciples then disciples and then the crowd and then the disciples. So today we find that Jesus is not done with the crowd. There's another crowd coming. So it's not just disciples. The crowd's coming back. They're following. They're following Jesus. So that's where this is going. So their dream of a revolutionary food making Messiah is not over. They're pursuing him. They're seeking Jesus you could say. So they have a poor understanding, a very limited vision of who he is and what he can do. They only see the Messiah they want. That's really important to understand. They only see the Messiah they want, not the one God sent. So let's get into the story here. We'll pick it up with the crowd on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. So meanwhile, back on the eastern shore, so the disciples get to the western shore and meanwhile, that next morning, um, it's the day after Jesus made the bread for the 5,000 or more people. Many in the crowd from that event did not go home. Many stayed there. Clearly they're not ready to go. They saw Jesus go up the mountain, withdraw up the mountain in the evening before, but they can't find him the next morning. So they're expecting to find him. They're going to work him again to try to get him to be the king or make him become the king or something like that. So the suggestion here is that they made a pretty thorough search 
for him and, and did not find him. And they wonder, could, it, could another boat have picked him up somewhere? Where, where did he go? You know, so verse 22, down in verse 22. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. So they had seen Jesus send off the disciples, and they're very perplexed, but their best guess is that somehow Jesus got a trip he, you know, he got an Uber boat or something and <laughs> made it back across the other side. So that's what they're thinking. And then something rather fortuitous happens. A group of boats is spotted coming to the eastern shore. So they get all excited. Verse 23, there came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So if Jesus crossed over somehow, now they had the means to follow. So they're going to commandeer or rent or whatever the boat. So the Ubers did come for the whole crowd. So verse 24, when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Okay, notice John's phrase. It's really important. Seeking Jesus, right? They're seeking Jesus. That's great. Now as a Christian, I can't think of anything better, anything I would want more for these people than to seek Jesus, right? That's awesome. But there's a question always that comes with that. Why are they seeking Jesus? What do they want from Jesus? And we know from verse 15, they wanted to have Jesus lead them into some kind of political victory over Rome and Rome's lackeys that were helping to rule Israel. So in other words, they were seeking him but for their own purposes and desires. And that's what's so wrong about it. They wanted a new Moses or a new David to bring back the kingdom of Israel. A man who can make bread and heal diseases with a word, a man like that can do anything. He can knock off a Roman army with ease, we assume. So they take the boats to Capernaum where Jesus lives and sure enough, they find him, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? <laughs> like they still can't figure that out. And they're wondering, they're kind of baffled about how all that happened. But Jesus is absolutely not interested in telling them how he got there. I walked on water, of course. I walked across. He's not, he's not, he's not going to tell them that. What he does do, though, right away, is address their misplaced priorities, which comes from their fleshly hearts, their earthbound hearts, their wrong desires. He knows why they've come, what they want, and he knows what they need. Did you know that sometimes what people want is not what they need? Sometimes. Ever been that person? And they don't actually need what they want. They really don't. They want a kingdom but not God's kingdom. And they don't need a kingdom that's not God's kingdom. So they need to be reconciled to God. Otherwise they won't even be in the kingdom. So these people need to be reconciled with God because they're sinful. Like all human beings are sinful. So just like Jesus told Nicodemus in chapter 3, tells a theologian, you must be born again. Well, in the same way, he tells these folks that they have sought him out for the wrong reasons. And they're hungering for the wrong things. So when Jesus, uh, notice in verse 26, it starts with, oh, there it is. It's a truly, truly statement. Or in Greek, the amen, amen statement. Remember we talked about those before? If he says truly, truly, you know he's going to tell you something really serious. And he's trying to get your attention and draw you into what he's about to say. You better listen. Because when he says truly, truly, this is what you need 
This is what you need whether you desire it or not. So verse 26 Jesus answered them truly truly I say to you you seek me not because of you not because you saw signs but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Not because you saw signs but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So first he identifies their motives and Jesus says it was not the signs. The miracles did make them seek him. I mean um, but it was the bread part not the person part. Their interests were in this world. Bountiful food means prosperity. Boundless prosperity. That's what they want. That's what people want. Prosperity and security. That's what they want. And that's what they wanted from him. It was the uh, you know there was a Roman poet named Juvenal who said just a little bit after Jesus time more like in John's time actually that he said since the Roman people had under the emperors had lost the right to vote and they had no political influence whatsoever they also lost the right to bribe he said so um, bribes and votes when you can't do that anymore what do you got? <laughs> all the power is somewhere else so he said all the masses want now and you probably know this phrase all they want now is bread and circuses, right? The games, that's the circus. The Olympics or chariot races or gladiators and all that stuff. Feed them and entertain them. Full tummies and great shows on TV. Nothing else was left to them, he said, Juvenal said, so um, that's all the Romans needed. And if you could give them, then everything would be okay. If, you, if they start losing bread and circuses, they're gonna be mad at you. So. You just keep feeding the people that. And it would have been pretty similar for a first century Jew. They had no political power except maybe in the high priest but he didn't care anything about the people so he wasn't a help. And then the only other thing is that one place they could lodge some sort of hope is that the Messiah would come. And that they did want that. A, a Roman crushing Messiah is what they wanted. So for many many years they had learned to settle pretty much for whatever they could eke out of life. They didn't really have a lot of chances for advancement or moving forward or anything like that. They expected little else. They labored for their daily bread. Or if you lived around the Sea of Galilee, your daily fish. <laughs> Remember Jesus made fish too. That was part of it. But they talked about bread here. So that's what, that's what they worked for. And now, after all of that, they found a bread maker. <laughs> a bread maker. A multiplier. And one of such power that they, th they thought Certainly somebody with that kind of power can free them from their oppressors, overthrow them, drive them out. But you know what? O oppression in this world is a symptom of a deeper problem. And Jesus isn't there to just throw out oppressors. He's there to solve the deeper problem. And the deeper problem is man's nature. Human beings are sinful. Human beings are sinful. And Jesus knows that. He knows the true problem. Their problem, the crowd's problem, and our problem is sin. Forsaking God and putting other things in God's place. Or making up gods. Or having God substitutes in your life. The oppressors have sin, but so do the oppressed. That is the big thing our culture misses. We're living in a whole world where oppressors are evil and the oppressed are virtuous. Just by being oppressed. That's not true. The oppressors are sinful and wicked and the oppressed are sinful and wicked. We all are sinners. 
And God is the judge of all. So we're accountable to God eternally and life is short. So how are we going to stand in the judgment? Sin condemns us and we all have sin. Rich or poor, oppressor or oppressed, the haves or the have-nots, they all stand before God as sinners. Jesus came to save us from God's wrath. That's why he came. He is God come to save us from God's wrath and make us God's children. Literally, Jesus came to turn rebels against God into the children of God. And if you've put your faith in the true Christ, according to his purposes, you're a child of God and you'll live forever. Jesus said he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so men would know that he is a savior he did the miracles. Signs. John calls them signs for a reason. Signs point to things. They, they label things. They inform us about things. Right? That. And the miracles point to Jesus and say that is God's son. And they inform us of his divine nature because he does things nobody can do. So these poor Galileans, they didn't see the bread miracle as a sign pointing to him. They didn't see it that way. But that was the whole purpose of it. They just saw it as a way, if they can get a hold of this guy, to have their tummies perpetually filled. That's, that's what they wanted. That's all they care about. So Jesus says, you seek me not because you saw signs, which point to me, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So now Jesus is going to try to elevate their understanding, lift their eyes, to grasp the infinite blessing that God has brought to them in him. This is their opportunity for life. So look at verse 27. He says to them, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. That's one of the richest exhortations in the whole Bible. It's all there. This life will perish. This life is short. It's fragile. It's declining. Our end is death. So labor then, he says, work for what brings eternal life. Eternal life is within your grasp. It can be attained. So Jesus, the Son of Man, will give them freely food that secures them for life everlasting. They work for this bread that always leads to death. In fact, we eat at our house, we eat killer bread. I, if you really think about it, there's a theological meaning behind that. But there, was that what it's called, killer bread, that Costco stuff? It's yeah. yummy, but it's, it's actually made by a former prisoner, so it, it, it's for some reason they call it killer bread. I, it, it's very good. But you know what? When you eat killer bread, it kills you. It's not that it kills you itself, it's just that you're going to die anyway. That, that food is not going to keep you alive. It doesn't grant you life eternal in any way, shape, or form. He will give food that conquers death, he says. And they hear that. They hear him say it. Well, this, okay, this is a God thing then. There must be some task or some ritual or some rule that brings us this food that leads to life. So verse 28, they said to him, what shall we do? that we may work the works of God? It sounds like a great question. And Jesus' answer to their question 
which is really John's theme throughout this whole gospel, all the way through, verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. You want to know what to do? This is what you do. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's it. Faith in Jesus, the sent one, is the fundamental thing. Sinners cannot do things to make up for their sins. All they can do is put themselves at the mercy of Christ, humbly coming to him by faith. That's all they can do. That's all you and I can do. Faith alone saves because faith joins us to Christ. And when you're joined to Christ, well, Martin Luther said it this way, you're so joined to him that your sin becomes his and his righteousness becomes yours. You're like glued to him. And there's a transference that takes place. He takes your sin upon himself to bear it, to bear the wrath of God, and he gives you his righteousness so God sees you as righteous even if you're a sinner. He sees you as righteous because it's Christ's righteousness that is given to you before the throne of grace, before God's throne of judgment. So faith alone saves because it joins us to Christ. Romans 5.1 Therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. No wrath, no judgment, no anger. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Justified by faith, which you so eloquently talked about this morning. Peace with God, no condemnation. All these Galileans have to do is put their faith in Jesus. Should be easy. But their response is really interesting. It's kind of unexpected. Verse 30, so they said to him, what then do you do for a sign? No, now you want a sign. So that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Now, why is that unexpected? Because these are the same people the day before. He made bread for thousands of people. Not only that, he healed a bunch of people before that. So he was with them all day yesterday and he saw all kinds of signs. Even the big sign, the really big sign, he made bread. And fed a whole giant multitude of people. What a question. They personally witnessed an astounding miracle. And now they're saying, what's, well, what sign do you show us? So, exactly what sort of sign do they need now? In order to believe. What do they want from him now? Well, they tell us what they want. And guess what it is? It's bread. They want bread every day, they want it for free, and they want it forever. Verse 31, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Manna! You remember that? If you read the Old Testament? Manna! That's that miracle stuff. It's like flakes that showed up on the ground. Every morning you'd wake up and with the dew there'd be these flakes and you could take it and make bread out of it. And that sustained the Israelites for 40 years while they were wandering. God did that every single day except Saturday. On Friday he gave them manna that would last an extra day. And that's how God taught them to keep the Sabbath. But, so it didn't show up on Saturday but it lasted for Saturday. Because if you, every day it wouldn't last. It, it, you make your bread and if you had any left over it would dissipate and you'd get some the next morning. But on 
on Friday it would last two days which is a miracle so God did do a miracle for the Israelites that's what they want can you do that Jesus we saw you do it make bread so can you do that for us free bread labor free bread for years can you do that Lord like Moses like Moses give us bread so that kind of thinking calls for another truly truly statement verse 32 Jesus said to them truly truly I say to you it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world so for, for one thing Moses didn't give them manna Moses told them about the manna coming from God God gave them manna right wasn't had anything really to do with Moses particularly Moses just told Israel second Jesus is talking about something else not manna another kind of bread a different bread what does he call it verse 33 true bread and this true bread will give life to the world that is eternal life that's the eternal life he talks about in verse 27 so Jesus uses the word heaven here three times that's not an accident he's this is not earth bread <laughs> This is heaven bread we're talking about. It's not earthly in any sense. The true bread is not what you're seeking. But that's what God is giving. But that's not what you're looking for. Now comes the words that separate the sheep from the goats if you will. The people, have, people have all sorts of reasons for following Jesus right? People can get just super emotional and it feels good to follow him. He can bring me good fortune. Uh, it's good for my family to be religious. I want God on my side as I navigate through life. Religion makes me feel good. Whatever it is. But now comes the moment of decision. Jesus is asking them to make a decision. You can follow him for some physical, social, or psychological need. Or you can turn to him as the living God who redeems your soul from death. Though That's your choice. Do I want the comfort of religion or do I want to be reconciled to the living God? Because I need to be reconciled. Which is it? What am I seeking? So these people are seeking bread. They hear Jesus speak about the true bread out of heaven and they're all ready for it. Oh yeah, verse 34. Lord, always give us this bread. Bread forever. They still don't get it. So Jesus drops the bombshell. This is the truth. Verse 35. Jesus said. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. So the true bread. Is a person. The true bread. Is a person. Eternal life is in a person. So Jesus statement here is the first of the seven. You know John always has sevens of everything. In John's gospel there's seven I am statements. You remember when Moses went up under the burning bush and saw God and he said they're going to ask what your name is. What's your name and what does God say? I am that I am. Right yeah that's the, that's the Ten Commandments version. Right <laughs> the, the moving. So he, he tells him but I am that's, that's his name. 
He's self-existent. He's a self-existent God. So John has seven times in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, I am something, right? And this is the first one. I am the bread of life, he says. Notice as well in verse 35 that Jesus uses two different verbs to explain how anyone can have their hunger and thirst satisfied. The two, one verb is come and the other one is believe. Come and believe. It's really great that he gives us both. Our bodies, our bodies hunger for food and drink because we need those things to live. Our souls won't have life eternal unless we have the bread of life. The bread from heaven. So Jesus uses this idea of hunger and thirst to give, to give definition to what it means to believe in him. So verse 35, he who comes to me is synonymous. It's the same thing as he who believes in me. And the reason he does both those words is because people can misunderstand believe as like, oh, I believe. I, I think it's true. But that's not coming to him. It's not an intellectual thing. Oh, I, I believe. That's part of it, but that's just a little tiny part of it. The big part is I believe in who he is and I give myself to him. I accept him. I'm coming to him. I'm coming to him as a supplicant. I'm coming to him as one who needs mercy. I'm coming to him as the savior of the world because I need a savior. That's what coming to him means. So that's what believe means. So that's why Jesus uses both, both words there. So believe involves coming, a personal acceptance. You know, people, are, people wonder why Christians are so obsessed with people embracing Jesus as their Savior. Why don't you just relax and leave everybody in their own position? They can do whatever they want. Say, so why, why bother people, you know? We bother them for the same reason. If we see a blind man walking off a cliff, we don't want him to do it. Hey, stop, there's a cliff right there. That's why we do it. Same, same reason, only we're talking about something much more important than just him falling off a cliff. We're talking about losing your soul. And so we tell people about this wonderful Savior. That's why we're so insistent about it. I know it gets annoying, but it's actually good for you to live forever. You should want to. Don't go that way. Here's the solution to your problem. And people will say, you know, I agree that Jesus was the greatest moral teacher ever, and he certainly was that. I believe that. The best of men, I, I believe that too. His impact on the world is unsurpassed but why insist that everybody believe in him because the best of men and the greatest moral teacher in the world said I am the bread of life and he who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst that's why you should come to him because that's what the greatest man that ever lived said and then he rose from the dead to show that he's serious about this is actually a true thing Nobody else has done that. So if he rises from the dead, you should believe the claim of the greatest moral teacher that ever lived, right? If this is true, Jesus really is the bread of heaven, the bread of life who gives life to the world. And to have life, one must come to him and believe in him. That's what God says. That's this is what God has done. This is what God offers you. Accept it. Accept him. Accept the person of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So while these Galileans sought for him, they had not come to him. Not in the sense God wants them to. Not in the sense of believing in him. They sought Jesus for manna, for bread, to keep their bodies alive a little bit longer. They came only for what he could give for their bodies. They did not come for Jesus himself. 
yet he is the bread of life. So Jesus said in verse 26, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. They did not in any sense seek Jesus for himself as the bread of life. That's not why they were coming. So he has to fix this for them, he offer them. Now, verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. So he's just telling, telling them right now, if you want the bread of life, if you want to live forever, you have to come and you have to believe in the one that God has sent. And now he's telling them directly, you don't believe. Because what you're seeking is not what God wants from you. That's not, you're putting your faith in the wrong thing. You just want bread. I am the bread of life, he says. So they don't believe, they haven't come, they haven't embraced him. Now these are people that intensely sought him and wanted to make him king. And he plainly says to them, you are not a believer. You don't believe. So folks, we cannot come to Christ on our own terms. You can't do that. You've got to come on God's terms. Of course you do. Who would think we come to God on our terms? Who would even think that? You know? Well, sinful men do because men are so fallen. That's how we think. Most men do this in their hearts. And that's the clearest sign that human beings are actually rebels against God. That they want to come to God on their terms. I mean that nothing says it clearer than that. Oh you want Jesus to just kind of approve of you. And he'll just be there to help you along. That makes you God. And he's your servant. And that's exactly backwards. God is our creator. He's our king. Christ is our God. And he loves us beyond comprehension. Now. In the next section, Jesus is speaking to how these Galileans could have so much truth, so much light. They've been with Jesus. They've heard him teach all day. They saw him do this incredible miracle. They have so much light and still be unbelievers. Even seeking him for the wrong reasons, but still unbelievers. How can that be? So he directly addresses that, that issue, why some believe and why others don't believe? Why me and not my friend, right? Why me and not my family member? Why do I believe and somebody else does not believe? He's going to directly address that. Those are the questions John will explore in the rest of chapter 6. And it's one of the most important chapters on that subject in the whole Bible. So Jesus decided to address it right then and there because of the unusual situation. These men are seeking Jesus passionately and they don't believe in him. So he's got to say what's the difference between doing it right and doing it wrong? What's the difference between the person that does the right thing and the person that can't do the right thing or won't do the right thing? Men seek Jesus but not believe in him. Others believe in him and they come to him. What's the difference? Well, this gets deep. Can you imagine? So um, we're entering deep waters together. So next Sunday, I want you to go in your garage and dig out your deep diving suit, your deep sea <laughs> diving. Y'all have one, right? A deep sea diving suit with the little big helmet and the hose and all that kind of stuff. Well, bring, bring it. Well, if you don't have one, then bring your Bible because we'll look at John chapter 6 a little bit more, okay? So, all right, let's pray. Our Father, you have done all that we could ask and so much more because of your great love.
for lost people. You sent us the bread of life so that we will live forever with you. But it is on us to seek the Savior as our Savior, as our King, as our God. And we ask you for grace to do this. And we pray in the name of the bread of life, Jesus Christ, amen.